heaven. That means we're at the end of the book of Revelation, the end of the series that we've called Famous Last Words, and I find it so incredibly rich and cool that God actually chooses to show John, who in turn chooses to show us what's coming at the end of the world as we know it. Have you ever seen this painting? It's really quite a painting, isn't it? I heard one guy say that this painting actually looks a lot like Thomas Kincaid and Dante. They were at a party together. One of them turned to the other one sometime maybe around midnight or so and said, you know, we really should work together sometime. And this painting is the result of their working together. And this painting really tells quite a story, doesn't it? You see the cross and it's a cross that's so big that you can walk on it, that cross hangs, sort of suspended in the air, floating above this quite ominous place where you definitely do not want to go, careful not to step off the edge. And then there's these people, right? And you see them walking on that cross and they're headed toward a city out there. You can't really see it well, but it's it's over there and it's a really nice city. It isn't a city like Detroit or Cleveland or even Billings for that matter. It's a, just kidding, I love Billings. But it's a nice city and it's surrounded by a wall and it's really sunny there. And that painting reinforces so many of the typical Christian stereotypes of heaven, doesn't it? People leaving where they are now to go somewhere else to this new place. That painting really sort of scoops up and captures the past several hundred years of Christian thinking that heaven actually happens somewhere else. And then the heaven stereotypes sort of go on from there, right? Harps, clouds, mansions along streets of gold, white flowing robes. I heard one guy talking about the stereotypical white flowing robes of heaven, and he said, who in the world looks good in a white robe? I mean, you put a belt on the white robe, and it doesn't really help, does it? And how do you play sports in a white robe? How do you wakeboard or snow ski or fly fish in a white robe? And certainly, if we're all wearing white robes in heaven, well, then no one's going swimming, right? Because you can't swim in a white robe, And surely somebody or a whole bunch of somebodies are going to spill food on the white robes and then who the heck's going to do all that laundry? And amidst those heaven stereotypes, the one that pervades over and over and over again more than any other is this thinking that heaven happens somewhere else. Which is absolutely true for a very short period of time because see, today or yesterday or a few days ago, if a follower of Jesus Christ dies, he or she steps from this life into what scholars and theologians refer to as the intermediate state. This transitional period between our past life on earth and our future resurrected life upon the new earth. So when we tell our kids, grandma's in heaven, that's what we mean. But that intermediate state, it does not last forever. Yes, it is in Christ's presence. Yes, it is full of joy. But it is not the follower of Jesus' final destination. And what I want to do today is recalibrate our stereotypical views of heaven. And I actually want to invite you to see it, not as we see it in that painting, but rather in a much different light. And then I want to call and invite and challenge and maybe even shove you into actually becoming a part of bringing heaven to earth right here and right now. If you have a Bible, Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse one, it'll be on the screen if you'd like to follow along there as well. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. And this next line is really bad news for ocean lovers. And the sea was also gone. Does that mean no sailing, 
No sunning yourself on white sand beaches, crystal blue water, I don't know. But it says the sea was also gone. I saw the holy city, watch this, the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. One of the amazing realities of John's heaven vision is that it answers the very first request that Jesus taught us to make the day he taught us to pray. Do you remember that day? Our Father, you know this prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth. What? Just as it is where? In heaven. The book of Acts in your Bible is the narrative of what the early church was all about, how they functioned, their mission, their priorities. Every single follower of Jesus Christ ought to read the book of Acts and ask God to use it in your life. And if you read the book of Acts, you notice something quite subtle. At no point in the entire book does anyone ever speak nor sound as though they're about to speak, nor do they reveal any thinking whatsoever along the lines of Christians following Jesus off somewhere else to heaven. Nobody ever says, well, Jesus has gone on before us and well, someday here pretty soon, we're gonna go off and we're going to join him there. Jesus never ever once told us to pray, God, get me out of here so that I can go there. But lots and lots of Christians these days pray Star Trek prayers, don't they? Star Trek prayers, you know? Star Trek, Captain Kirk, Starship Enterprise, and he would say to Scotty in the very old Star Trek movies, the very old Star Trek episodes, what did he say? Scotty? Beam me up. Now, if you're under 30 and you have no idea what in the world I'm talking about there, find somebody who's over 30 and ask them. They'll fill you in. Lots of Christians pray Star Trek prayers. Beam me up, God. But Jesus never, ever once told his followers to pray, beam me up. Jesus never himself prayed, God, get me out of here. Let me go there. Instead, every time Jesus says, God, make there invade here. Whenever the New Testament speaks of God's kingdom, it never ever refers to going off to heaven. Instead, the scriptures always refer to God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. Which means then that heaven is not just out there somewhere in time and space. It is, see, immediate. Heaven isn't just what we're waiting around for until the rapture or just where we go when we die. Heaven is barely out of the range of our senses then. It's already and it's not yet. But it's brought quite dramatically to our senses by the revelation vision of John. In, in the incarnation, that was God becoming flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to earth to inaugurate the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Well, that's the range of God's effective will. God's kingdom is that sphere in which everything that happens meets with God's perfect approval, God's perfect delight, where things are precisely as God wants them to be. And God's kingdom is not a place because God is everywhere. His kingdom is a domain in which everything that takes place meets with God's approval. And Jesus came to earth to be the great kingdom of God bringer. Jesus did not just come to earth for the sole purpose of dying on the cross, popular to much opinion. 
He wasn't just treading water for 33 years before Good Friday. Jesus' death on the cross was just one part of his overall mission. His bigger mission was to be the kingdom of God bringer. Jesus says, look, I understand life in my Father's kingdom. And my plan is that I'm going to bring that kind of life right here, right now, to this place. I'm invading the kingdom of this earth with the kingdom of my Father God. And then Jesus told anybody who wanted to call themselves a follower of his, who gave their hearts and lives to him, that we were to be about that same mission as well. We are to devote ourselves to that very same project. We're to engage in that kind of life that's marked by humility and community and righteousness and peace and joy that breaks in and breaks through to the kingdom of this earth. Make what life is like in God's kingdom become what life is like on earth. That's Jesus' plan. That's what he gave himself to. That's what he calls we who call ourselves his followers to devote our lives to as well. Make things run here the way they do there. That means then that this evil world that we're walking around in, and it is evil and it snags us, doesn't it? But that evil that snags us and trips us up and breaks our heart and crushes us isn't just a hopeless morass of random evil, is it? It's, see, birth pangs of a new creation, and it's actually the invitation by God to us to participate in his remaking and his redemption and his renewal of everything here, his creation. It is indeed a collision between the kingdom of this world where things do not go close to according to God's will and the kingdom of God where everything goes perfectly according to God's will. Heaven, it's not just a dreamland that we retreat off to and life gets hard and messy and gnarly. Heaven is not just fantasy. We actually, Christian, have access to heaven now. The invisibility in which we're immersed, which is developing into visibility that one day will be thoroughly and entirely visible. Heaven breaking in, breaking through here and now. And we're to be part of it breaking into the kingdom of this world. And Christian, your and my understanding of heaven has dramatic effect upon what we give our lives to. If we believe that we're just going to be evacuated from this world off to some new one somewhere else, then why would we give a rip about this one right now? Last weekend, Gary Bashirs was here. One of the fantastic challenges that he left us with was this idea from Revelation 19.8 that we're actually right now, remember this, making our wedding garments right here and right now. That is to say that the followers of Jesus Christ as the bride of Christ will one day be wed to Jesus, will enjoy this absolutely enormous, unimaginable feast with him. And the very clothes that you and I wear on that day will be woven of the good deeds that we render in service to God today. Whoa. That ought to be incredibly motivating for every single one of us. Go be about that. Now, it's my contention that the precise same reality is in view when it comes to our present activities as followers of Jesus Christ and how those activities integrate into the reality of heaven. Because you see, Jesus' invitation for us to join him in being kingdom of God bringers is all about us living in such a way, watch this, everything we're about now endures in the world that's coming here. It means that you and I We're actually prepping for the new heaven and the new earth right here and right now. That should be incredibly motivating to us as well. 
That means that us following Jesus is about him showing us how to live inside of his kingdom here and now in anticipation of the day when earth and heaven are one. And that day is going to be quite a day and it's going to be full of quite a few surprises, one of the biggest of which is that heaven, at least in large part, is a city. Did you catch that? Revelation 21.2, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. We rather imagine heaven as some kind of restoration to the natural, restoration of everything to this sort of formal garden-like paradise, an unspoiled wilderness like the Bob Marshall or something. That all seems right to us. When we go to get renewed or restored, we most often head for the country or the wilderness or Hawaii, right? Some variation on Eden, paradise. After all, it was the sin of humanity that caused us to be cast out of the garden. And so we kind of go like, well, shouldn't salvation be restoration to that same garden? We like gardens. They're quiet. We stroll in them. We contemplate. We smell the roses. We pet the unicorns there. We commune with God in the cool of the day. Garden life is blessed life, so it seems. And seeing heaven as a city, at least in large part, sort of grates us, doesn't it? Cities are really often gross, noisy, self-asserting, very forgetful of God, even kind of like defiant of him. Cities abuse people, sort of battering them into compliance. That's city life, which means that in our thinking, heaven ought to get us as far away from cities as possible. Haven't we had enough of their mess in this age? Don't we deserve what we long for? How many people want to go to heaven kind of like they want to go to Florida, right? Because the weather's better and the people are nicer down there. But heaven isn't just some sort of nice environment removed from the stresses of day-to-day life. Instead, heaven is the invasion of the city of this earth by the city of God himself. Heaven is is not at all about escaping what we don't like in this world. Instead, it is the sanctification of everything about this place that God has placed us. It's about him setting all this right. Heaven's a city, but it's a holy city. And one day, get this, that city's coming here. And we're prepping for that day in every single thing that we do right here, right now. All the way from sharing our faith with our friends and neighbors and classmates and relatives and coworkers. Why? So that they're spiritually ready for that day. From sharing our faith with all the people in our world who we long to be there with us. All the way to digging wells for people who don't have access to clean drinking water. We're prepping for the final breaking in and breaking through of the kingdom of God. Heaven on earth. When everything here will actually be like everything there. So what's it look like for us to be about the kingdom of God breaking in here and now? The book of Acts chapter 16 shows us, Acts 16, 16. If you've got a text, you can look there. If not, you can follow along. By way of background, the Apostle Paul, he's one of the early church fathers. He's been praying with this small group of Jews in a city called Philippi in northern Greece, a town that really prided itself on its Roman connections. Look what the Bible says. One day as we were going down to the place of prayer... We met a demon-possessed slave girl. That doesn't happen every day, does it? She was a fortune teller who earned a lot of money for her masters. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God and they have come to tell you how to be saved. 
This went on day after day until one day Paul got so exasperated, he turned and said to the demon within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. We have this sort of image of Paul as being like, like this perfect dude, right? Never ever got mad, you know, just everything was so cool. But here he is, he got exasperated, the Bible says. So exasperated, he called the demon out of the girl. And instantly the demon left her. Her master's hopes of wealth were now shattered. They're bummed. So they grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged them before the authorities in the marketplace. The text goes on. The whole city is in an uproar because of these Jews. They shouted to the city officials. There's fireworks, isn't there? They're teaching customs that are illegal for us Romans to practice. A mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas and the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. And they were severely beaten. And then they were thrown into prison. And the jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape. Duh. Really. Make sure they don't escape. Like, okay. I think he knew it. They just wanted to be clear. So the jailer put them into the inner dungeon, clamped their feet in the stocks. And while the gospel messengers may often be put into prison, the gospel itself is never imprisoned, is it? Ever. And around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening, because they didn't have anything else to do or anywhere else to go. They were stuck there, and you wonder what they're thinking. What are the new guys all about? And suddenly, there was a massive earthquake, and the prison was shaken to its foundations, and the doors immediately flew open, and the chains of every prisoner fell off. That's dramatic. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself. But Paul shouted to him, stop, don't kill yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, ran to the dungeon and fell on trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? One scholar I ran across this week insists that when that jailer said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What he really meant was, gentlemen, will you please tell me now how to get out of this mess? And that's a little humorous, but it's also a really important point. Because for Luke, who was the guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke, also wrote the Acts. For Luke, every time he referred to salvation, it was never purely a spiritual thing. It was always, for Luke, about both an earthly and a heavenly rescue. That's how Luke saw salvation. Earthly and heavenly rescue. Very important. And they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. And they shared the word of the Lord with him, with all who lived in his household. Even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. Remember, because they had been severely beaten. Then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. They didn't wait. They did it then. He brought them into his house, set a meal before them. He and his entire household rejoiced. Why? Because they all believed in God. The next morning, the city officials sent the police to tell the jailer, let these men go. So the jailer told Paul, the city officials have said you and Silas are free to leave. Go in peace. Please, like, get the heck out of here now. Go. And Paul replied, you have publicly beaten us without a trial. You put us in prison. And by the way, we're Roman citizens. Uh Uh-oh. So now they want us to leave secretly? Certainly not, Paul says. Let them come themselves to release us. When the police reported this, the city officials were alarmed to learn that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. So they came to the jail and apologized to them. Then they brought them out and begged them this time to leave the city. When Paul and Silas left the prison, they returned to the home of Lydia. There they met with the believers and encouraged them once more. Then they left town. Now why in the world do I share this text with you in conclusion to a sermon that's supposed to be all about heaven? 
It's because I want all of us to understand with crystal clarity that heaven is not about a place we just jettison off to someday. Rather, heaven is about the kingdom of God breaking in more and more and more and more through all of us into this place until the day when the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven to earth. And that Acts narrative portrays incredibly powerfully what it looks like for the kingdom of God to arrive through rather ordinary followers of Jesus Christ. On earth, just as it is in heaven. And you see it again and again and again throughout that narrative. The prayers of Christ's followers, the testimony about Jesus Christ through Christ's followers, bringing healing and hope and redemption and renewal to people all over the place. You see it again and again. You read the book of Acts, you see it again and again and again. And so the question lands on all of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus. Have you actually made your life about Jesus' kingdom coming now through you on earth just as it is in heaven? Or have you just made your Christian life about standing by, sitting around waiting to go to heaven someday? Which is it? You see, Jesus' kingdom is breaking through. And it breaks through into this world every single time a single person recognizes that their sin is keeping them from God. They acknowledge their need of Jesus as their savior and then they give their heart and life to him. The kingdom of God every time breaks through into the kingdom of this earth. Any time and every time you bring a slice of his life wherever you are. Every time you go, every time you share your faith with somebody who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, the kingdom of God is coming. Every time you're in conflict with somebody and you want to hurt them, you want to gossip about them because that's what you do, you like want to smash them because they hurt you, because that's how it goes in the kingdom of this earth, but instead you don't. You rather deal with them in humility and love and reconciliation and in forgiveness. That is the kingdom of God breaking in and breaking through. Every time you get a little chunk of money and you decide that instead of spending it on yourself, you're gonna give tithes and offerings to God via your church to reach a community with the gospel and feed somebody who's hungry. That's the kingdom of God breaking in and breaking through into this world. Whenever somebody has an addiction and they're willing to get well so badly that they're willing to stop hiding and acknowledge the truth and get help, help from a loving community like our Celebrate Recovery ministry. That is the kingdom of God breaking in and breaking through into this world. Every time you include somebody who's lonely, every time you encourage somebody who's defeated, every time you challenge somebody who's wandering off the path, every single time you go and you put a serving towel over your arm and go serve somebody, anybody, I don't care, that's the kingdom of God breaking through into this world. You and me living life on the mission of Jesus Christ. That's part of God's answer to the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. Heaven's not about leaving here and going off somewhere else. It is about heaven coming right here. Are you in? Are you on? Are you going to be about it? I hope so. I hope so. I hope that none of us would give ourselves to anything less 
and the very mission of Jesus Christ himself. Let's go. Take your stuff and set it aside if you would, and I just invite you to go to prayer. Just talk to the Lord about what's going on inside of you, what's stirring up in your heart. I'm going to ask you to stay in this posture of prayer if you would. Maybe you're a person here today and you don't yet know Jesus as your Savior and boss. I want to invite you right here, right now, today, to stop running from Him and make that life-altering decision, that eternity-altering decision. Stop running. Stop rebelling. Stop pushing back against Him and just give Him your heart. Give Him your life. Why not today? Why not today? He's making the invitation to you right here, right now. He's saying, let me forgive you. Let me cleanse you. I want to make you new by the power of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. God's saying to you, I sent Jesus to die for you. I love you that much. He actually wants a relationship with you. A relationship that starts now and goes on forever and ever and ever for all of eternity. And if that's your choice today, I just invite you to tell that to God. You can do it in a prayer. Just pray along with me. God, I know I'm a sinner. I get it. I'm done running. I'm done hiding. I'm done pushing back. I'm broken. I'm sinful. I'm at the end of my rope. And God, I'm saying thank you to you today. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for me. And Jesus, to you, I'm saying, thank you for taking my place. Thank you, Jesus, for setting me free. Here's my heart. Here's every single thing that I am. Wash me clean. Make me new. By the power of your death, burial, and resurrection, I love you, God. And if you're stepping into faith in God today, that's the single biggest decision of your whole life. Nothing and I mean, nothing matters more. And it's such a big deal that around here, we actually ask you to sort of tell us when you make that decision. Nobody's looking around this room but me. I'm just going to ask you, if you'd be so bold right now, as to slip your hand up and lock eyes with me and just say, I'm saying yes, yeah, over there, yes. And in the back, yes, yes. And there in the back, I see you, absolutely, yes. And in the back, absolutely, yes. Yes, you're in the middle, absolutely, Yes. Oh God, that heaven for us would never be about just jettisoning out of here somewhere else. We absolutely and entirely look forward with great anticipation to the day that the new Jerusalem comes and heaven and earth are one. And until then, God, we're going to be your partners in bringing the kingdom. We're going to make that our very life's mission. We're not going to stop We're going to bring it, and we're going to bring it, and we're going to bring it by the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us. We love you, and our lives and every single thing we have are yours. We're all in with you, Jesus.